Let us pray. God of love, be present with me and with us today as we hear your word spoken through the prophet. May we hear it, receive it, wrestle with it, and be inspired to act because of it in ways that are pleasing and honorable to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. My first advice to give you before hearing the reading today is to buckle up, if you are able. (laughs) Today's passage from the book of Amos is not an easy one for pastors or lay people to hear. When the prophet Amos came to the northern kingdom of Israel to prophesy its imminent downfall, the king of Israel was a guy named Jeroboam II. Now, under Jeroboam II's reign, Israel was flourishing. It was flourishing economically and religiously. Profit margins were high, and the practice of religion was flourishing. And yet, as you will hear pretty clearly, God is not pleased. And so God sends the prophet to set them straight. Now, the setting for today's reading, where the people were when they would have heard Amos speaking, is not that different of a setting than we find ourselves in this morning. These challenging words were spoken to an audience gathered for a religious festival in Bethel, one of Israel's most important religious centers. Now, in their worship, the people are crying out for an encounter with God. They want the day of the Lord, as they call it. They want the day of the Lord to come. But that's only because they think it will be a day of light. It won't. Listen now for God's word to you and to me from the prophet Amos. Seek the Lord and live, and he will break out against the house of Joseph like fire, and it will devour Bethel, and no one to quench it. Ah, you who turn justice to wormwood and bring righteousness to the ground, the one who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash out against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate the one who reproves in the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and push aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, the prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, just as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas, They shall call the farmers to mourning and those skilled in lamentation to wailing and all the vineyards they shall be wailing for I will pass through the midst of you, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. 
Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like water, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The word of the Lord. Sorry, I thought all the humor there at the end might help the medicine go down. Let's just start with an honest confession. Whenever I read this passage, whenever I let it sit with me a bit, I wonder if God hates and despises our worship. I don't question God's love for us. God's love is unconditional and unshakable. What I do question from time to time is whether our worship pleases God. Now, Amos suggests here in pretty tough words that religious piety, religious practice, is not a fit alternative, a fit replacement to the demands of justice. God's people may have been worshiping faithfully on the Sabbath, but during the week they were trampling the poor, taking bribes, and pushing aside the needy at the city gate, and God is not pleased. I spent part of this past week with a group of youth from this church at a mission experience in Baltimore. While there, we learned about the injustice that has created the inequity and division and generational poverty that plagues the city of Baltimore. While there, we did some service work. We tended some urban gardens, and they were amazing. But more importantly, we opened ourselves up to a painful history that has made life so difficult for the marginalized residents of Baltimore. Practices like redlining and blockbusting that we know in Richmond as well. One night, while talking with the youth about our experience, I asked one of them, who had been making some really insightful comments throughout our discussion, I asked them, why don't you come to worship at First Pres more often? I never see you there. What's the deal? Their answer stuck with me all week long. I don't come, they said, because our worship feels performative and disconnected from the problems that people face in the real world. Performative and disconnected. Sounds a lot like Amos. Now in the projects of Los Angeles, there is a church that decided to open its doors to homeless immigrants. Every night, homeless and undocumented workers would sleep in pews in the sanctuary. On Sundays, the priest and some very dedicated women of the church would arrive early and do everything they could to eliminate the smell the men left behind. They would sprinkle Love My Carpet on the carpet and vacuum like crazy. They lit scented candles and placed bowls of potpourri in strategic spots throughout the congregation. They also burned a lot of incense. But the smell persisted, and church being church, you can guess, People grumbled. They complained. Well, finally, in one day in worship, the priest decided to face the problem head on. God bless him. 
during the sermon, he asked the congregation, excuse me, what does the church smell like? People were mortified. Eye contact seeks. People pulled out their phones. Women started searching their purses for God knows what. Come on, the priest persisted. What does it smell like in here? Finally, an old man who never cared what people thought about him anyway shouted, It smells like feet! Exactly, the priest replied. And why does it smell like feet? Because homeless men slept here last night, the woman answered. And why did we let that happen? It's what we committed to do, someone said. And why would we commit to that? Because it's what Jesus would have us do. Well then, the priest asked, what does the church smell like now? It smells like commitment, one man shouted. It smells like roses. And then everyone laughed and cheered, like a church who knew where they were and were clear on where they were headed. How can we ensure our worship is pleasing to God? In the middle of Amos's rant, there's a short verse that may hold the answer. Hate evil, love good, and put justice into effect in the gate. We understand what it looks like to embrace good and reject evil. We get that. But this last phrase, put justice into effect in the gate, is a bit confusing to our modern ears. The gate here refers to the place where the local courts of Israel's towns and cities were held. The gate was the location where justice was administered. It was a fortified building in the city wall where the poor were protected, the widows and the orphans received help, and the truth was proclaimed. The proceedings at the gate were not formally organized as they are for us today, nor were they presided over by professionals. All the adult male citizens who weren't otherwise disqualified were eligible to sit as assessors. And they were encouraged to speak up, to ensure the rebuke of the wrong and the support of the right. In this setting, thou shalt not bear witness, false witness is not just an admonition against lying. It's a necessary social practice to ensure justice for the poor. Amos is pronouncing judgment on these religious and prosperous people because the same courts that were meant to protect the poor were being used to subjugate them. And the blame, he says, rests squarely on the people who failed to put justice into effect in the gate. The people had disconnected, unplugged, their religious life from their civic one. They may have been worshiping God with fervor, but they were not taking the values they celebrated in worship out into the city, and they weren't allowing the issues they encountered in the city to inform their worship. Now, this tendency to disconnect, to unplug our religious life from our civic one, it still persists. Despite the demands of the prophets and the teachings of Jesus, for many religious folk, me included, the public forum often remains disconnected from our life of faith. Christianity in its first 2,000 years has kept morality mostly private and interior and heaven-bound 
with few direct implications for what we now call our collective social, economic, and political life. And yet the prophet still speaks, and his words still ring true. To ensure that our worship is pleasing to the God, that we worship Sunday after Sunday, we have to be as concerned with the horizontal relationships that define our civic and social life as we are the vertical relationship that defines our religious one. What we do in here has to be connected to what we do out there. And the only way to do that, in my opinion, is to talk about in here the things that matter out there no matter how messy that might get. Worship that is pleasing to God is worship connected to our collective economic, social, and political life. Now, that does not mean we need to get partisan on Sunday mornings, but it does mean we need to get political in so much as we try to figure out, to discern together how the values we learn and hear from the scriptures, from each other, from the Spirit, how those values influence our advocacy and action out in the world. For example, regardless of your opinion on the issue, this past week, a seismic shift took place in the realm of reproductive rights. It is all people are talking about outside these walls. And our instinct as church people is to avoid discussing it at all costs in worship, to avoid talking about it and all the other hot-button issues that dominate our public dialogue. I'm talking about issues like racism, gun violence, and gender identity. Now, sometimes we take these things out. We remove these things from our worship, these topics from our worship, because they make us feel uncomfortable, and I get it. But more often, I think we ignore them, remove them, because we think they are too dangerous and too divisive. But what if the opposite is true? What if our hesitancy to wrestle with complicated social issues together as a people, as a worshiping body, disconnects us not only from the world God so loves, but from God as well. If we are to take the prophets seriously, every single time life gets more complicated and difficult for the poor, the oppressed, and the marginalized, we need to figure out together how to respond with compassion and care. For example, I would argue that the gospel demands that our response to Roe being overturned is not only to celebrate or to protest. It is to pray and discern together how we can advocate for the people whose lives got a little more difficult because of the ruling. I'm thinking of the poor who are always the most affected by drastic changes in public and social policy. Having a child, I know for a fact, having a kid is really expensive. And it just got more likely that more people in poverty are going to have more children. Which means we need to prepare ourselves to stand at the city gate to advocate and support and speak up for those who are already struggling to pay their bills, afford health care and child care, 
and find a quality education for their kid. I know this will be messy. I get it. But if we can't discern how to faithfully respond to the struggles of real people in the real world here in this place, a place defined by God's mercy, God's love, and God's grace, where on earth can we talk about these things? If we are only willing to address topics we all agree on, if we have those topics, we not only neglect our biblical mandate to those in need, I think we also transform our worship into nothing more than a performance of personal piety. Amos is not addressing secular or indifferent people. He's addressing people who are practicing their religion with zeal. He's addressing people who love God. He's addressing people like us. The Outreach Council here at the church is currently working to clarify, crystallize our church's mission identity so we can make a deeper and more impactful difference in our community. As we've engaged in this work, the members of the Outreach Council have made it very clear that relationships will be at the center of any mission identity we choose. People are, will what, drive our, are what will drive our mission, and people will be the ones who inform it. As Australian activist and academic Lila Watson says, if you have come to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. The Reverend Tom Long tells the story of his first Sunday at Nassau Presbyterian Church in Princeton, New Jersey, an old historic church right on the Princeton campus. As you might guess, Nassau is a church filled to the brim with intellectuals and scholars from many fields. That evening, a man sat down next to Tom Long at the Sunday night potluck and struck up a conversation with him. So, how long have you been here? The man asked Tom. Oh, not long. We just moved here. How about you? Oh, Lord, he said. <laughs> I've been here all my life. I'm the last non-intellectual left in the entire congregation. I have not understood a single sermon in 25 years. Why don't you leave? Leave? I would never leave. Why? Well, you see, every week, I'm the one that drives the church's van to the youth correctional facility in Somerville, where we talk and play ping pong and read Bible with the kids there. At the beginning, I went because it was the right thing to do, you know? The thing we ought to do as Christians. But now, I would never miss a Monday with those kids. They feed my soul. I wonder if behind Amos' critique of the people's worship, if behind all that anger, there was sadness. Sadness at how much the people of God had forgotten, how intertwined, interconnected their lives were with the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed that they had disconnected and unplugged from their lives. We really like to think of salvation as a personal thing, something God does for us individually. 
but God has a much, much bigger plan in mind. Christ came not to save you and me. Christ came to save the world. Whenever we advocate for and fight for and stand with the least of these, we advocate for and fight for and stand with all of humanity, all of God's children. And any worship that doesn't celebrate that truth, that doesn't acknowledge that truth, that doesn't seek to understand more deeply that truth, that's not worship at all. Amen.